and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Russell Matambo, and our guest today is Anthony Noto. Anthony is the CEO of SoFi Technologies, a member-centric, one-stop shop for digital financial services on a mission to help people achieve financial independence to realize their ambitions. SoFi innovates across three business segments, lending, financial services, and technology platform, which offers the only end-to-end vertically integrated financial technology stack. The company is also the naming rights partner of SoFi Stadium, home of the LA Chargers and the LA Rams. Under Anthony's leadership, SoFi became a public company in June of 2021, at three times the value from just three years prior. Before joining SoFi, Anthony held executive roles at Twitter and the National Football League, and was a partner at Goldman Sachs. A graduate of the US Military Academy, Anthony also holds an MBA from the Wharton School. Join us as we explore some of the pivotal moments over Anthony's five and a half year tenure as SoFi CEO. The story behind SoFi Stadium naming rights deal, Anthony's upbringing and how it shaped his views on money and leadership and how that continues to drive his passion for the business today and many more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Anthony. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Where are you calling in from? I'm uh, calling in from San Francisco, our headquarters. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm calling from SoFi's New York office, where I'm an MBA intern for the summer. It's been such an honor to be part of SoFi's story. Well, I uh, really, we really appreciate you being a summer intern. It's a really critical program for us. Um, it helps us get insights to how you're thinking about getting your money right as you enter your professional career. Uh, and similarly, um, it's a point in time where you know we think we can really help help you as well, and and uh, give you products and services. So it's a very symbiotic relationship, and you've had a great impact on our thinking this summer. So thank you for being part of the team. Thank you. Um, to start with, can you give us an overview of your career to date and how you ended up in fintech? Yeah, it's a pretty um, diverse background and how I ended up here. Um, uh, prior to joining SoFi, I was the CEO, COO and CFO of Twitter. Uh, prior to that, I ran technology, media, and telecom banking at Goldman Sachs, and I spent 14 years there, um, primarily focused on technology and the commercialization of the internet and then mobile and then social. Um, the opportunity came to me uh, at a point in time at Twitter where things were going well after a couple of restructurings. We had returned to growth and we're about to announce our first quarter of gap profitability. And I felt like I had, you know, had a meaningful impact on the company during my four years there. And its outlook was was really bright. Um, and I aspired to be a CEO. So when the call came, um, you know, it was not something I initially was interested in. Um, but the more I spent looking at the company and the more I was prodded by some of the board members to dig in, the more I realized it was a perfect fit at the perfect time. Um, my background uh, as I mentioned, you know, started with you know, internet companies back in 1999 uh, and saw the evolution all the way through mobile and social. Um, having been in financial services was also a compliment. Um, and having worked at a, a company that was uh, mobile first at Twitter was also a great compliment. So it was, a, it was a unique opportunity for me to leverage my professional background in technology in social and mobile and the financial services industry, which is all of what would be needed in this role as a CEO. The second um, thing that made it very attractive was I thought it was an opportunity to really disrupt the financial services sector. Um, and due to the financial services sector, what Amazon did to retail, what Netflix has done to media, what we've seen uh, Priceline and Expedia do to travel. Um, and having been a student of seeing all those industry groups evolve and be disrupted over time, you know, the question in the back of my mind was why hadn't it happened in the financial services? Um, and I thought that SoFi was unique in two regards. One, it had an established brand that had created great value in its first product of student loan refinancing. Two, it had a sizable capital base. And then three, and that it raised over $2 billion of capital. And three, it was starting over. It was a chance to come in and reset the mission, to reset the culture, to bring in a, a leadership team, and to really um, point the company in a direction that was very different than it had been in the past. And kind of refound it, which was also very attractive to me. I always wanted to be a, um, a you know, a part of a company that had a great culture and that was mission mission driven. And then personally, as I dug into it more, I realized how I would have benefited throughout my life um, with my mom and 
my brothers after my parents got divorced from a company like SoFi helping my mom think through how to get her money right as she transitioned to being a single mom that hadn't graduated from high school and hadn't having to raise three boys um, and uh, using all the social services that were provided, but getting to a point where um, she was an entrepreneur and generating enough income from uh, her beauty power to support us and help us get to where we wanted to go aspirationally. So it was a combination of all those things that came to bear in joining the company. And five and a half years later, it, it feels like it's still day one. We've barely scratched the surface, um, but it's been incredibly rewarding. And I, would, I couldn't be happier at having made the decision. Wow, that's amazing, Anthony. And it's really interesting to hear how the different parts of your work experience, your personal life have all tied in and, and influenced this decision to join and, and lead um, so far. But you do have other professional experiences and would love to hear how the different experiences tie in together. So as far as I know, you were at the NFL at some point, you were at Twitter, you worked in consumer goods and equity research. I'm curious how these very different areas tie in together and and how you've been able to leverage lessons from that in your career as so far sure well first i i must say it was not a grand plan i sort of navigated over time by thinking about each opportunity and tying that back to my personal and professional goals but also um where those opportunities could lead and so i went to west point i was a mechanical engineering major um i went into the army as a communications officer uh, which is where I learned about the internet and internet protocol uh, address and internet uh, you know, driven communication, asynchronous transfer mode, uh, digital networks. Um, after the army, I went to Kraft Foods to really learn um, business. Um, they had a program where they hired you in as a assistant brand manager, which was a general manager track that led to brand manager, which was essentially being a brand manager of a business. Some people would also call it product management. Uh, I spent four, or roughly four years at Kraft Foods. Um, first uh, half of that time was on a, a business that had, was quite old, um, but very differentiated in good season salad dressing. Um, having not had a business background and not having taken any academic courses in business as a mechanical engineering major coming into Kraft, um, I kind of migrated to areas that other people didn't have an expertise in, such as new product development which is something they don't really teach, or at least back then wasn't something that was really taught as a discipline within business school. Um, and I developed a expertise in new products and that created an opportunity for me to go to another one of Kraft's divisions in White Plains called Post Serial. Um, when I was there, I worked on building um, brand new businesses from scratch based on white space and uh, the division needing to grow um, uh, secularly over time. And that experience really got me exposed to financials. It really got me exposed to the entrepreneur approach, startup approach. Um, I convinced Kraft to let me go back to business school while working at Kraft. And I was fortunate to get accepted into the executive MBA program at the Wharton School of Business at, at Penn. Um, while I was there, I had a great opportunity to network with people that were much older than me. At the time, I think I was 29 and the average age of someone attending the Wharton Executive MBA program was in the late 30s. Um, and so as I got to learn more about business and all the disciplines, I made the decision to switch from Kraft Foods to Wall Street into equity research. Um, the first area I went into for equity research was retail, which was a great complement to the branding experience I had at Kraft and part of the ecosystem of a consumer packaged good company. Uh, while I was there, that was in the you know mid to late 90s. Um, around 1998, it's when the commercialization of the internet first started. And giving my technology background from the Army, my branding background from Kraft, my retail coverage experience at Lehman Brothers, I was fortunate to get recruited by Goldman Sachs to come in as their electronic retailing handles to cover these companies that were being formed and only had online distribution uh, companies like Amazon and, and eBay and Priceline and Expedia. And so I made the switch to Goldman Sachs and uh, over the next nine years that I was there from 1999 through the end of 2007, I covered the internet sector, uh, then added the media sector, and then the um, satellite um, uh, and cable industries. Uh, that gave me a pretty broad-based background in you know those areas, and uh, that led to me being recruited by the NFL to be their CFO, which I, I went and did for a number of years. Um, and uh, we did a bunch of deals while I was at the NFL, renewed all the media deals, I redid the labor deal, redid stadium financing deals, and and restructured its its whole financial foundation. 
um, at the end of that, um, I, I realized I really enjoyed, um, you know, using finance strategy to really reposition the company and allow that company to build a great economic foundation and drive, you know, a decade to two decades of really strong growth. Um, and I wanted to do it more frequently. Uh, it was already done at the NFL. And so I went back to Goldman Sachs in banking this time. And that's what led to leading TMT and uh, banking and uh, and ultimately being the banker on the Twitter IPO when they recruited me to, to join their company as, as a CFO. That's an impressive track record. And uh, thank you so much for sharing that and give us context. I definitely see the product emphasis showing up throughout my internship. There's a strong product focus across SoFi and, and, and you know, all the different products are really working hard to, to, to set themselves apart. So, so I definitely see that uh, following through and also you experience from other, other spheres. Now, just shifting gears towards SoFi here. For our listeners, can you give an overview of what SoFi is and what its service offerings and mission are? Sure. Um, SoFi is a member-centric one-stop shop for digital financial services. Our mission, uh, which we established when I joined the company that I pitched the board on, essentially, um, our mission is to help people achieve financial independence to realize their ambitions. This means we offer a full suite of financial services products, um, products that are there for every one of the major financial decisions our members will make in their lives in all the days in between. Uh, we've scaled from about 4,000 members in, two, in 2018 to 6.2 million members at the end of uh, Q2. Um, our goal is to help our members get their money right. Um, that means we have to help them borrow better, save better, spend better, invest and protect better. Um, it's really hard to achieve this point of financial independence, which really means you have enough money to do what you want, have the size family that you want, live where you want, the career that you want, retire when you want. In order to get to that point, um, you can be super successful academically and follow that with great success professionally, make over $100,000 a year and still struggle to have the choices and, and not have the ability to do what you want. And so if we're there for all the major decisions in your lives, like buying a home or paying for college, um, we can help you manage that appropriately. But most importantly, manage the day-to-day -day things that allows you to have enough excess uh, cash flow after your discretionary spending to invest because not investing in your 20s is nearly impossible to make up in your 30s and 40s doing the compounding effect of dollar cost averaging and year after year of investing and so our goal is to help you do each one of those things better so ultimately you get to the point that you can invest and you can get to the wealth level that you need to to really uh, realize your ambitions so um when when i joined we we're primarily just student loan refinancing and unsecured personal loans um, and over the course of the last five and a half years, we've built out that complete suite of products all on a mobile device, in addition to creating a great value proposition as a member beyond our products. So we give free career advice. Um, we give you access to a, a certified financial planner for free. There are um, rewards that we provide for making yourself better financially and making others better financially. And we'll continue to iterate on the value proposition, not just giving you unmatched products, making those products work better together. And then, of course, giving you services that allows you to, to really understand the path from one area to the next. Thank you so much for sharing that. Not only does SoFi have a full suite of, of consumer products, over the last five years, SoFi has made over $2.1 billion worth of acquisitions. These include a bank, two core banking companies, Gal Galileo and Technicis, and a Hong Kong-based digital investment platform. All of these have been fascinating to watch, at least for me personally. Can you talk us through the strategy behind these acquisitions? Yeah, the, the, the simple way to think about it is um, we're trying to build a great value proposition for our members and to do that in a way that we have a competitive advantage, which is typically derived from having superior unit economics. First and foremost, though, we have to build great products that our members find highly differentiated versus others and that they're reliable and that our members ultimately trust us or they'll never use a second product. One of the core foundational things to delivering a differentiated product to having superior in economics is technology. And so the company um, very astutely built its lending business on owning the technology from what I call the metal to the glass, from the server all the way to the, the computer screen or the phone screen. And that allowed us in that 
sector in that business to have very differentiated products, to innovate very quickly, to be able to personalize real time, to provide competitive pricing, other value propositions. And we controlled our own destiny because we don't have to wait in line for some service provider to do something for us. Um, we get to drive the pipeline of innovation and we also get to the benefits of scale and driving superior unit economics. And so I wanted to replicate that same strategic advantage in the other products. The challenge was how do we launch all these products incredibly fast so that our marketing message of being a one-stop shop was real, was actually something we could deliver on. And if we didn't have the products, we couldn't market that. And so it was super imperative that we kind of attacked all of these different areas of borrowing, saving, spending, investing, and protecting at the exact same time. We couldn't just build out borrowing and then when it reached profitability, launch savings. And then when that reached profitability, launch checking. The value proposition had to be from day one, one-stop shop. I saw how hard it was for Amazon to move from being a books, music, and video provider to then doing consumer electronics, then doing apparel and all the other categories. And so I wanted to build the brand as a one-stop shop from day one. And the only way to do that was to have all the products day one. Obviously, it took longer than day one to get them out. But we blitzscaled through 2018 to get everything launched. And when we launched our SoFi Money product, which was the best of checking and savings in one product in one account in SoFi Money, we were using third-party providers for payment processing, for ACH, for debit, um, for a number of other services. And what I found was they didn't innovate the way we wanted to. We had to wait online for other bigger partners and the costs were really absorbent. So I was able to find a company in Galileo that we could buy that could give us modern technology, modern um, uh, platform for with, built by APIs to provide all the services we needed to build our app in checking and savings and to do it at great unit economics. I was very fortunate in that our board supported that acquisition in March of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And that built the foundation of our technology platform and our ability to control our own destiny in our products outside of lending the, the way we do in lending. And so that was a really critical acquisition. As we moved on, um, you know, we wanted to fulfill this strategy that existed with the board as the AWS of FinTech, in that there was a number of technologies that SoFi needed as a one-stop shop and everyone else would eventually need um, in the digital world. And that if we actually built out those technologies because we knew what was needed more than anyone else, then others would then buy those technologies from us and create a great synergy in our R&D investments. Um, as, we, as we've integrated Galileo and saw the benefits of it, we knew there was another wave of innovation to be the AWS of FinTech, uh, and that was to provide the operating system on top of payment processing and all these great APIs for functionality like two-day early paycheck or overdraft protection or roundups or vaults. Um, and we were in search of a core technology that would allow SoFi um, to have all of its product on one core. Because one of the things that we were struggling with at SoFi is we were using different cores for all the products. But if we could put all of the products on one operating system, one core, and that operating system where that core was extensible into products we didn't even have today, we would have a huge competitive advantage. We could do better personalization, better real-time data, better real-time decisioning. Um, and that led to our acquisition of Technosys, which has been really critical. The combination of Galileo and Technosys has really solidified the cornerstone of the strategy of the AWS of FinTech. And both of those technologies have now been leveraged into new product areas like Connecta, which is a modern language AI chatbot um, that we're selling um, to our existing customers and non-Galileo and Texas customers as well. We also have a product called PRP, which is Payment Risk Platform. That's a product everyone in the digital financial services industry, as well as e-commerce needs. It's a transactional fraud uh, capability to reduce uh, transaction fraud. So we'll continue to build out new technologies on the on these two platforms and to serve well the more than 125 million accounts that Galileo and Technosys enable in the U.S. and in Latin America. Latin America. So those are the two big um, acquisitions that not only solidified our competitive positioning um, as a differentiated product in SoFi and a strategic positioning, competitive advantage, and low cost operator and and unique, you know, unmatched unit economics, um, but it also gives us a diversified revenue stream that complements um, the direct-to-consumer businesses we have. Can you take us through your journey over the last five years and share some of the key milestones that you believe have been most instrumental in shaping what SoFi is today? 
I think the first um, really important milestone was launching SoFi Money, which, and, sorry, our native mobile app, which happened in the beginning of 2019, shortly followed by SoFi Money. Um, the company was largely a desktop company and just in two lending products. So launching a native mobile app was a milestone for us to kind of, you know, step into the modern era and distribution of, of mobile device. And then second, you know, SoFi Money was a watershed event and that it was our first product outside of lending um, and one that would be the tip of the sword, so to speak, years later um, in our acquisition uh, of, new, of new members. So that was a, a big milestone. I'd say launching, you know, SoFi Invest was an important milestone as it was the first step outside of the traditional banking products of checking and savings and lending. Um, and when we launched, you know, SoFi Invest, we launched as the only place with stocks, single stocks without commissions that you could buy. We pioneered fractional shares. We're the first provider of fractional shares. Um, in addition to that, we had several robo accounts that were SoFi robo accounts. Uh, we eventually added ETFs, and we also um, en enabled cryptocurrency to be uh, purchased uh, through SoFi through a partner at, at Coinbase and now Coinbase and BitGo. You know, from there, we um, really started to build out the experience in the mobile app that was not necessarily uh, financial services. So for example, we have a product called Relay, which is a, a digital personal financial management tool that allows you to connect all of your financial accounts across your entire life, not just what you use with SoFi. So you get a one window pane view of what's going on with your money across your investment accounts, your brokerage accounts, credit cards, um, all your checking and savings accounts, and including your home assets, insurance assets, et cetera. Um, and from there, it was really about starting to build awareness and trust. Um, and it was in 2019 in the fall when I was presenting the 2020 plan and I said to the board, it's a matter of when, not if. And they said, what do you mean when, not if? I said, it's a matter of when, not if we become a top 10 financial institution in the United States. We have the products and they're already superior to our competitors. We have them all in a digital mobile app, which none of our competitors have. And in addition to that, we're going to keep iterating like crazy. This is our first year. This is our rookie year it's day one. The products are only going to get better from here. And there's it's going to be really hard for them to catch up because they just don't have the technology platforms we have. So we have product superiority. It will only get stronger and better. Really, what we need to build now is trust. For the first time, we, we have to convince people to give us their money instead of giving people money. Well, for them to give us their money, they have to trust us. We have to become a household brand name. And literally, as I said those words, I said to myself, damn, we have to do that LA Stadium naming rights deal. My team had been bugging me since I joined in 2018 to do the deal. And having worked at the NFL, I understood how expensive those deals were, how complicated they were. Not every company executed it the right way, so the value would be hard to extract. But as I, I talked about trust and becoming a household brand name, I instantly realized there's no faster way. There's no credible relationship to have than your name on a stadium that's going to have 20 million people watching Monday night football or Sunday night football. And no brand that has elevated itself above, um, uh, you know, above the other leagues, that's elevated itself above the consciousness in our country, that's become a pop culture icon, that be, has become a platform for people to have a voice, um, to drive equality and, and all these great things. And uh, you know, having worked there, I understood that brand and having been at Twitter and having licensed Thursday Night Football when we launched Twitter Live. I understood how powerful it could be. And in that instance, I knew we had to do the stadium deal. Um, and it was a, a watershed event to have won that deal because there were a lot of brands that wanted that deal. Um, they had a lot more money than we had. We had to figure out how to fund it. It was very early in our formation. It was going to cost us a lot of money relative to our budget, but over the long term, it would pay out. The simple math was if we could get five primetime football games a year, we reached 20 million people in each of those primetime national televised uh, airings. Um, and that was five times bigger than what we were doing with a bunch of other single point sponsorships. And so all we really did was take the money away from these four or five other national sponsorships um, and allocated it to the stadium. But we got five times the reach. All of those other sponsorships only drove about 15 million unique viewers a year where one game in SoFi Stadium during prime time would be 15 to 20 million in one game. Multiply that by five times and you have five times the efficiency. Layer on top of that, that Stan Kroenke and his family was building what I thought would be the eight wonder of the world. They were building a platform 
that every ambitious musician, every um, sports league, every um, type of event would want to be on because it's such a unique platform. And sure enough, they were able to secure the Olympics, able to secure um, the World Cup. Uh, they've had phenomenal musicians there kicking off with the Rolling Stones and most recently six shows from Taylor Swift. No venue in the world has six shows of Taylor Swift um, in her Euro tour. So it's become the eighth wonder of the world. Everyone wants to be on that stage and SoFi um, is part of that and part of that brand awareness and that notoriety and has really become an epic element of our branding strategy. Wow, congratulations on landing that uh, that deal. Needless to say, this has been immensely valuable to, to SoFi's brand awareness. And it's also been unprecedented to see a fintech at you know, a private fintech at the time have such a sponsorship deal. I'm curious, what do you think sets you apart against your competitors for that deal? How did you win that deal over others? I think first and foremost, we were a brand that was trying to change the world um, and change the way people thought about their money and, and what they aspired to be. We're an aspirational band. Our, our mission has, you know, is to help people achieve their ambitions through financial independence. And you know, I think the the stage at SoFi or the stadium itself is about people with grand ambitions and giving them a platform to show the world who they are and help them achieve more. I think also, um, you know, our product is unique in that it's used in the stadium and we could make it the easiest place in the world to spend money. Um, and also a place in which you could save when you spend money by using SoFi. So we are, in, as they call endemic to the building, endemic to the category. And our, our pitch to Stan Kroenke and Josh and, and the family and and to uh, Dean Spanos at, at the Chargers was that we would make it the easiest place in the world to, to spend money, um, make it seamless. We were committed to giving people the best value we could by giving them discounts and unique opportunities to to buy and to spend while they're there. So you know, taking our, our, our goal of helping people spend better and save better and buy better and instituting that with, within the stadium. Um, and that we'd bring a member base to the table that would see it as a benefit of being a member at SoFi when they get get to the stadium. And then I think there's a bunch of intangibles. Like it can't be missed that I worked at the NFL for three years as the CFO very, during a very trying time um, during the financial crisis when we had to make a lot of pivotal decisions that set the foundation for the next decade uh, of their growth. And so that brings, you know, notoriety and credibility you know, of who I am and, and, and appreciation of, of getting stuff done. Um, I think the success we had at Twitter um, in being the pioneer, uh, both the idea and the first um, partner in live Thursday night football being simulcast on Twitter. Um, you know, that was a, a deal that, um, you know, we went to the NFL, an idea we went to them with, and they thought it was such a good idea. They offered it to everybody and we had to win that deal. Part of winning that deal was my commitment to doing whatever was necessary for the good of the partnership. And I, I upheld that commitment. And you know that also, I thought, came to bear in this particular situation. You could have the most detailed contract in the world with all the fine print that you want um, on any deal, like a live video deal with Twitter or this stadium deal uh, with SoFi. But at the end of the day, you can't capture every scenario. As an example, you couldn't capture the pandemic. And they needed to know that they, they could trust me, that they could trust SoFi, that SoFi would do what was right for the partnership, even if it wasn't in a contract, even if it wasn't something that we agreed and, co and contemplated. Because a 20-year deal and a lot can go wrong in 20 years, and was I going to be a reasonable partner? I'll give you one great example. We signed the deal, uh, and then the stadium team came to me and said, hey, we're thinking about changing the roof. We think the roof should be a video board. So instead of your name being up there in big block letters permanently fixed on the top of that stadium that every airplane going to LAX flew over, Instead of it being in those huge letters, we want to take it off and put a video board there instead, and we'll put your name around the outside. And I thought about it, and I didn't have to agree to the deal. We'd already signed our deal. That was part of the deal. I didn't have to change my view. And I thought about it, and I said, well, as long as whenever you have a video up there, SoFi's at least like 25 or 30% of the video on the bottom, like a banner ad would be like in a video player, I'll, I'll gladly do that. You know, everyone was really surprised that I was willing to do and didn't ask for money back or anything else. But the reality was like, if SoFi Stadium had a video board on the roof, that meant it was going to be able to run some of the most iconic videos, be able to, you know, communicate some of the most iconic sayings, 
and it would be part of being the eighth wonder of the world. And that when planes flew over it, there'd be a lot more people taking pictures of what was on that roof than just SoFi. Uh, and they'd be retweeting those. They would be tweeting out those photos. They'd be posting it on TikTok, posting on Instagram, and it would drive impressions well beyond what we ever would have gotten from our name simply being up there. Um, but being able to see through the changing of that agreement that was written in the contract to the value of the overall partnership, I think was also an element of why they they chose SoFi. And you know, to date, Stan and Josh and Dean and everyone from the NFL and those teams have far exceeded expectations of what they were supposed to deliver. And I hope they think the same thing about SoFi. Wow. Thank you so much for giving us more of that detail. And it's impressive to hear some of the stories that went behind the scenes. And just building on that, I, I do see a big part of SoFi's recognition and success, I think, is, is the marketing engine you've built or the brand and marketing engine. In addition to the stadium, one of you know, the iconic campaigns, at least during my time while I was here, is uh, the Face of Finance campaign. Can you talk us a little bit about that? And perhaps also if you can share to what extent do you feel marketing and branding is pivotal to the success of SoFi? Well, first thing I'd say is marketing is absolutely critical. And, and I think of marketing in the classic sense, the, um, the four Ps and the three Cs, um, for somehow in Silicon Valley, people don't think of it that way. They think product is something separate. But to me, um, marketing is really about the whole uh, value equation and thinking through the four Ps and, and the three Cs. Um, marketing's critical to our success. It's the, um, when you don't have a physical location um, and you're digital and you really have to develop trust and reliability um, and you have to communicate all the value propositions to get people to download the app. Because they're not going to just walk past the branch and and know that, hey, that's a bank that's in my town. I can trust that it. it's been here for 30 years and walk in and see it. So um, you have to overcome that lack of a physical presence um, and and get drive unaided brand awareness. Um, when I arrived, our unaided branded awareness was 2%. That means that if you ask 100 people when they're thinking about a financial product that they need, name three companies that they would think of. So two out of 100 would say SoFi when I got here. That's been as high as nine or 10% uh, for us since then. Our goal is to build our unaided brand awareness into the 20s. To be a top 10 financial institution in the United States, we need to be in the 20%. That means we need 20 out of 100 people to say SoFi. The only way we get there is by leveraging our marketing, which includes product and pricing and placement and promotion, but it also includes channels and competition and really understanding the, the consumer. Um, and so Lauren and her team, Lauren's our CMO. Um, she has done a phenomenal job. She's built a great team. She's brought the stadium to life. Um, we signed the SoFi deal confidentially while hiring the CMO. And um, in that process, we gave the candidates a case study that basically said, would you do this, this stadium deal? Because the last thing I wanted to do was hire a CMO that thought it was a dumb idea. And Lauren embraced the concept of the stadium during that case study. And presented why she thought it was important. So she had great insights. She had a sensibility that was very similar to mine. I, I learned about marketing at Kraft Foods. She was a P&G uh, person. So she grew up in a classic consumer packaged goods um, educational process of, of uh, being in brand management as well. Um, and our team has just done a phenomenal job of tapping into, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of marketing. Like what's the, what's the value proposition? What are the reasons to believe what are the channels that we market in? How do we drive iteration? How do we use data? All those elements. And that's an important part. Like the scientific part of marketing is critical. Um, but if you can combine the scientific part of marketing, which I call the rational approach that drives the rational benefits with the emotional side and tapping into a consciousness and tapping into an emotional feeling, you know, then it's incredibly powerful. I, I get chills just saying the words tapping into the consciousness because I reflect on some of the campaigns that happened before Lauren came here, one that was strangers talking debt, which you go on YouTube and you do a search on strangers talking debt or finances, it's like emotionally gutting. It's, it's just shocking to realize that people have considered killing themselves because of all the debt they have as the only way out. And that we don't have, you know, we have 5,000 banks in the United States and they can't solve um, this poor person's debt issue um, enough that she's actually considering an op viable option is, is to kill herself. Um, and it's so shocking. But you know, that, that's just one example of the, 
changing the face of finance is another example of, of how our marketing team, our product team, our team overall really understands the challenges of not having a strong financial foundation, they, your financial health and getting to that point of being financially independent. And a lot of our employees are here because they've experienced that themselves and they understand the opportunity we have to deliver such an emotional reward and benefit to people. So the changing um, face of finance, I think is phenomenal. It came entirely from our, our team. Um, you know, I think a lot of CEOs try to try to take credit for things. I'll take credit for hiring the team because this was their idea. They did the research. I saw, and I just, I wanted to cry because it was so, I think it was so spot on. Um, and it ties into our country, um, and social issues and, um, inequality. Um, which is the greatest destroyer of democracies and uh, equality is an important element that we can help deliver. Um, not just about racial and gender equality and educational equality, but economic equality. And if we can give people the ability to control their own destiny through finance, finance and economic equality, the rest takes care of itself. Wow. That is, that is amazing and powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And, and actually that really paints the picture of how important financial well-being is and and how material that is to people and then you know sometimes we don't realize it but you know as you painted out it it could be a life and death type of situation and at this moment shout out to lauren and the marketing and the communications team for for all the hard work it's been very impressive now just moving to the future of sofa you've mentioned multiple times that one of sofa's main goals is to become a top 10 financial institution in the US. From my estimation, um, if this is measured by market cap, that would mean at least 10 times what the market cap is today. Can you tell us how you measure this goal and what are the building blocks from where we are now to get there? Yeah, I'd say the building blocks are everything that we've talked about up until this point and then scaling them. One of our priorities for 2023 is to scale our people, process, and technology. Um, we just reported over 6 million members. Uh, our growth rate there is 44%. We're going to continue to build out trust and reliability. That will drive brand awareness. There are five, um, um, there are 5,000 banks in the United States. There's 500 million accounts in the United States. Our goal is to have hundreds of millions of customers, hundreds of millions of partners. Um, and I think you can do that on a digital platform. It's a, a grand strategy and grand uh, vision. Um, but in order to go from 6 million to 20 to 50 million, we have to make sure that we have people processing technology that can scale. So that's a big, important part of 2023. And it will be an important part of every year um, go going forward. So that's really critical. You know, the awareness, um, I think it takes care of itself. We have a very clear strategy. We'll continue to introduce new products and services. We'll continue to market them um, significantly, and um, and I just think that's you know very formulaic at this point, very scientific. We have to keep tapping into the emotional elements of the value proposition, but I think it's there because it makes people's lives better if they have financial independence, and so it's it's endemic in what we're doing every day. And then I I think the re other reality is what does the competition do? We've seen competitors come and we've seen competitors go. JP Morgan Chase, when I first joined, had an app called Fit. They launched a digital-only app um, that was supposed to be their digital brand that they ended up closing down after a year. Um, when I first arrived, Marcus was a big, you know, in the news and a big potential competitive threat, and and they've seemed to stumble and 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 try to find their way. There's a number of other privately funded companies that wanted to become a one-stop shop, but that were really strong in one category like brokerage or lending or just straight checking and savings. And, you know, they haven't been able to fulfill that that vision the way the way that we have or at all for that matter. Um, so I expect there's going to be another wave of competition and it could come from technology companies like Apple, um, could come from large incumbent fintechs like PayPal. Um, it could come from consumer companies like like Amazon. So, you know, it, it's hard to know exactly how that's going to unfold. But if we keep building greater and greater competitive advantage through superior unit economics and and unmatched value proposition across selection, across fast, across content and convenience, and making our product work better together, um, and giving great member services, I, I think we can thwart the competition. Um, so we're really in step on the gas and. 
um, you know, keep it, keep it to the fore as fast as we can, but to make sure that the vehicle we're in can sustain the, the winds and the rains and the storms that come. And I used the analogy the other day that in the last five and a half years, I felt like first we got hit by a tidal wave and then we got hit by a hurricane and then we got hit by a tornado and then we got hit by an earthquake. Um, if you look at it over the last five and a half years, all the monumental things that have happened from a negative standpoint, the fact that we're still standing here on top of the mountain, looking down on other people that said they're going to climb that same mountain, it, it's it's nothing short of a miracle. Not only that, not only have you have you faced all these challenges head on, you have posted nine straight quarters of record revenue in spite of all of that, which is very impressive. And 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 I think some of the things you've already mentioned talk to what what makes you distinctive and, and what makes SoFi so impactful. Just shifting gears here. Now, any interview of Anthony Noto would be incomplete without touching on your personal story and how it shaped your views on leadership. You've mentioned earlier uh, that some of your upbringing and how that's influenced your relationship with, with money today. Would you like to share a bit more on that? And from my perspective, is this, was this inspiration for the motto, getting members' money right? Yeah, I, th I think there's two sort of uh, talk tracks to that, that question. The first is, you know, I alluded, alluded to this before. My parents got divorced when I was three. I had an older brother and a younger brother. Um, my mom got married, uh, mom and dad got married young. Um, I think 19 and 20 had my older brother when my, I think my mom was 20 or 21. Uh, my mom hadn't graduated, uh, from high school. Um, not because she didn't have the, you know, capacity or desire, but she, her mom passed away from leukemia. Uh, she was in a tough situation needing to raise my uncle with my grandfather. Um, and you know, she chose to go down that path. Got married, had three kids, and my parents got divorced. Uh, when I was three, and my mom had to figure out how she was gonna raise three boys with uh, you know, her income and whatever, you know, supplements she could get from my dad. And, you know, we were in food stamps and welfare. And, you know, I would say during those years, I think I think I kind of suppressed a lot of those things from my thinking as I became an adult and started to find economic success. But when I came to SoFi, they came back. Like the realities of a lot of those times and how we, you know, we got by and what she did to get us by. I, one, it caused me to be even more passionate about our mission. Um, you know, she became a beautician. She uh, eventually opened her own shop. Um, after, you know, doing well and, and having two chairs in the shop, she, she rented the place next door, which is a pizza shop and knocked down the wall and put in tanning beds and workout equipment. And this is in the late seventies, early eighties before these big chains started. I mean, we went from, you know, being on food stamps and welfare to then going to better schools. And, um, we went from free lunch kids in elementary school to paying for our lunch in middle school. And by the time we were in high school, you know, we were, we were doing much, much better, but she had to figure it out on her own. There was no one for her to call or no SoFi for her to um, be part of. And I think if there was, it would have been a lot easier. And I think if there was, there's a lot of people that didn't get to that point that she was able to navigate through that, that I grew up with, that I saw when I lived in Heritage Gardens and, you know, H3 was our, our apartment and, uh, you know, it was a very diverse neighborhood with, you know, low economic status and a lot of people never made it out of there. Um, and, but she figured it out and, uh, with the help of my stepfather, eventually, uh, uh, Bertie as well. So, you know, I, when I got to SoFi and I started thinking about that time, it just helped build my passion for what we're doing in a much bigger way. And, um, you know, something I realized was not just about people that were in my mom's situation, but my brother, my, both of my brothers were very successful, made, you know, significant amount of income above average. They're our perfect target, but they struggled to live the American dream despite their professional and, uh, success and economic success is just not enough to live the American dream. So that, that's a great passion that I have. And I find every day that there's these highly successful people that face these same challenges on $200,000, $300,000 income levels. And it's just a shame that we haven't been able to help those people see the benefits of all of their hard work and that economic professional success translating to you know mental success, and emotional success. Um, on the other side of the equation is like my mom um, you know, taught me how to play baseball. Right? She was my baseball coach. She fired my little league baseball coach because he was ina inadequate and inept. Um, and so she, she taught us a lot about athletics and the importance of getting up 10 times after getting down nine times. She wasn't a, a warm, touchy-feely lady. If you complained about what was going on on your baseball team or football or hockey team, she wouldn't listen to it. She'd say, you're not trying hard. 
That was always the answer. You're not trying hard. If you're not good enough, it's not the coach to you type of thing. Um, with the benefit of that is I played on some great sports teams. We played everything growing up. And um, my friends, my closest friends to this day were competitive as shit and didn't matter how good or I, what awards I won. It was never good enough. They, they would never, you know, acknowledge any of that. It was always about what, you know, next play and, you know, lining up next to them or, um, you know, we, we played every sport and it built a competitive spirit that, that I, you know, I bring to the table every day. And West Point played a huge role in that as well. My closest friends that I played football with, they were even more competitive than I was. And I thought I came from a pretty competitive neighborhood and there was no quit in any of my friends. Um, and they're my, you know, they're like, all of them are like my brothers today. So I benefited from standing on the shoulders of great friends and family. And um, it helped me be a more competitive, more driven person and more resilient, um, but also more balanced. Um, you know, I never really stop and think about what we've accomplished or focus on it because I know how quickly failures are right around the next corner. Thank you so much for sharing your personal story. And I can definitely see how impactful it's been to you and, and, and how that resonates in how you lead uh, so far and, and, and your career at large. In, back in Africa, we have a saying that um, it takes a village to, to raise a kid. And it's the different experiences of different people that you, know, you interface with that make you who you are. I'm curious, and, and I know this will probably be a, an entire episode on its own, but I'm curious, what are some of the most enduring lessons that you've taken from the people around you, the institutions you, you've been part of? The, the, the sports teams or otherwise that you've been part of? What are some of the most enduring lessons that you still carry today? Yeah, I think for the like the business person, the, the person that's trying to get advice on careers, the person that's trying to build a company or wants a, a you know, sort of good framework to how to think about the behaviors that you individually um, display and then that you hold other accountable for. Our 11 core values are essentially my value system. They're essentially what the employees of SoFi wanted as their culture. And they're they're perfectly aligned. When I was interviewing for the job, I asked for some research. And one of the things I got was um, the the output of a thing called One SoFi, which the management team had put together to try to help build the culture and fix the culture. And they basically asked that One SoFi team, what are the behaviors that they would be very proud of, of a company upholding their employees to? And I looked, it was a 35, 40 behaviors and all of them aligned with how I thought about a great culture. We distilled them down. We did. We distilled them down to 11 core values. But those 11 core values, like that, that's my value system. That's SoFi's value system and they're, and they're perfectly aligned. Um, so that those are based on life lessons professionally and personally and from all the careers. I'd say a couple other things that I kind of learned along the way. Some of it came from my coaches in high school and in college. My, my high school football coaches, uh, Ted Peterson and and Bill Pachone were incredibly influential. And I remember I had one of the greatest games as a quarterback I could have had. And I was on cloud nine and like everything just worked. And the next game, I, I had the worst game I possibly could have as a quarterback. And I remember Coach Pachone saying to me, Anthony, as a quarterback, you're never as good as you think you are and you're never as bad as you think you are or other people think you are one way or the other. And he's right. And when we have a good quarter or we have nine quarters in a row, like I don't get overly excited about it. I don't get overly upset when things go wrong, things go wrong every day. And like, I live by that. You're never as good, as bad as they think. Um, you know, you, th there's a reality when you think about um, running a business that as a CEO, it can be low. Um, there's not necessarily something you turn to to confide in. You know, people are looking for you to be the leader and set the example. You know, and I think at West Point, we were taught very vividly that you either lead, follow, or get out of the way. And sometimes as the CEO, you, you know, you have to follow, you have to put someone else in charge. You got to, you got to trust other people that could be board members. It absolutely is for us. Uh, it could be partners. Um, that absolutely is the case with things like the stadium. And it could be, you know, an activity that we're doing as, as a leadership team and having the confidence that you as a leader can follow these other experts and they can get to you where you want to go. So I still live by that lead, follow, or get out of the way and, you know, leaders set the example. So our core values is definitely a map to to follow, and um, a lot of a lot of anecdotes I could give you from my from my coaches. Thank you so much for sharing those. Just as we're coming to time uh, and and ready to close out, we usually like to leave our audience with some interesting information about our guests. 
My question to you is, what is a fun fact about you that many people might not know today? Fun fact about me that people may not know. My favorite movie is Harry Met Sally. Oh, wow. Pretty solid. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> That's really great. And in, in my research, um, some people have mentioned um, your love for Lululemon. Is, is that Sorry. something you can share? <laughs> yeah. My, uh, w- one of our daughters um, uh, bought me Lululemon pants, ABC pants. Uh, she worked with a bunch of you know young men, professionals that were wearing them. And I was like, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do with these, these ABC pants. But I tried them on and yeah, they're pretty nice. And they don't wrinkle. You can wear them 10 days in a row without washing them. I don't wear them 10 days in a row, but if you had to, you could. <laughs> Um, they go with the suit, they go with sneakers. And I kind of, you know, it kind of opened my eyes. I was wearing like Lululemon t-shirts at the time, but it, it kind of exposed me to the brand in a bigger way. And before you knew it, not only was I buying and wearing just Lululemon pants, I was buying Lululemon underwear. And I followed the Peter Lynch um, theory of investing, which is buy what you know. And so I bought some Lululemon stock. So I joke with the company about it. So that's probably how you've heard about it. I love it. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a fantastic interview. Um, love to hear all about your experience with Solfi, your personal journey, and some of your formative experiences. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you, Russell, one, for being an intern at Sofi and accepting the opportunity and having an impact on our company, being a great, a great intern for us and spread the word back on campus. We'd love to love to have you back and, and all of your friends and um, thank you for the, this podcast as well. Obviously, Warren is a, a place that's very special to me and my family. Um, it's near and dear to our hearts and I'm happy to do whatever we can for uh, Wharton School of Business at University of Pennsylvania. So thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, you can subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Russell Matambo.